0: Hey, Defenders, welcome to the In Defense of Children podcast, a space for youth defenders. So
1: Padilla, at least... of enshrined a legal principle that we have in california since the 80s and that is that public defenders have a constitutional obligation to not only tell somebody what the immigration consequences of a plea offer will be but also to have a duty to defend against them at least in california we've interpreted that as being specific advice i think a lot of public defenders sort of took that as like this may affect you you know that's that and i've done my duty but that's not enough
0: We are Christina Kleiser, Assistant Public Defender. Kristen Anderson, Juvenile Law Attorney. And Kashana Lattimore, Assistant Public Defender. And we are on a mission to build our community of defenders and raise the level of practice we bring on behalf of children thrust into the delinquency system. With each episode, our goal is to bring experts and other defender specialists to educate and inspire us to be better defenders each and every day we walk into the courtroom and to learn more about the policy issues facing Tennessee's court-involved children. We want a world where policymakers Rely on data and science rather than their gut, and so we hope that this adds to their understanding. Hey, defenders! Co-host Chris Kleiser here, and I am so excited about our guest for today's episode, which, in general terms, is practice tips for working with our child clients who are non-citizens. The primary Supreme Court case you will hear mentioned a lot today is Padilla v. Kentucky. If you haven't read it, go read it. It is the foundational case that gives defenders guidance on our ethical obligations to our non-citizen clients. Most of our listeners won't know this about me, but when I first left law school back in 1997, I started in Cleveland, Ohio, doing all things poverty law at the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and had the privilege of working under the then director of the Legal Aid Society, Lionel Jones, who did most of the immigration work for them back then. I was generally happy with that first job out of law school until one day I was told that as a part of a routine audit, government officials were coming in to interview staff, including myself, about whether or not our office was complying with government restrictions on legal aid's work. Among those restrictions was lots of prohibitions on working with non-citizens. Needless to say, I had no idea before I took that job that at intake, we had to ask if someone was a U.S. citizen to even help them. Now, there are a few exceptions to that. And when the McCarthy-like auditors came around and asked whether my community street law trainings had any non-citizens in the audience, I knew I couldn't stay at that job. I threw my application into a few nonprofits in Miami, the Texas border, California, and I said to myself, the first offer I get, I'm going to go. And that took me to Miami, Florida, where I worked for the Florida Immigrant Advocacy Center for several years with fighters like Cheryl Little, Becky Sharpless, Lisette Losada, and other fearless advocates. And my immigration work took on a life of its own. Among my many hats was representing children who came to this country alone in immigration detention down in South Florida, and that is how I met Holly Cooper, our guest today who's currently the co-director of the Immigration Law Clinic at UC Davis, has extensive litigation experience defending the rights of immigrants, and is a nationally recognized expert on immigration detention issues and on the immigration consequences of involvement in the criminal and delinquency systems for non-citizens. I also am excited to have her here because she and I have been colleagues and friends since we both were baby lawyers 20-plus years ago. Holly started representing unaccompanied minors in Florence, Arizona, and I was doing the same in Miami. And we would see each other at conferences. I knew I was with my people. Holly, welcome to the In Defense of Children podcast. I'm so excited that you're here with us today. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks, Chris. This is so exciting for us. So before (laughs) we start in on all of the amazing information you're going to share with us today, can you just give our listeners a little background about yourself and how you landed where you are today?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I'm from Texas originally, and so I have a connection to the South. I have a lot of family in Arkansas, Missouri, and Texas, and Louisiana, so I'm always willing to help out (laughs) Tennessee or whatnot. I got started in immigration, I think it's because I grew up speaking Spanish and I was bilingual. So I was asked to interpret a lot for people who were seeking refuge during the original sort of big asylum exodus from Central America. And I probably did hundreds of applications for political asylum back when I was younger. Uh, As a translator, I was not a lawyer yet. I really wanted to become a doctor, but everything in the world kept sort of like pushing me in this direction to become a lawyer. I think it's also growing up in Texas, really seeing the need of our communities there. And at the time, there weren't a lot of lawyers that were bilingual. Now, of course, there's tons. I think it sort of jettisoned me towards doing border work where I met you, Chris, doing children's work. And I got a a big fellowship through the court system to develop a public defender type model for immigrant kids in detention. Pretty shocking to public defenders, but there's no right to appointed counsel for even children who are detained Mm -hmm. in immigration custody to this day. So they tried to kind of fudge it and get funding through the Department of Justice to create some type of program where the children would at least have a modicum of due process through counsel. So Chris and I, where how we met, I think we were like one of like maybe eight or 10 lawyers doing kids' detention work at the time. After doing that for two years, you know, you burn out, do it all work. And so I moved into adult work where I worked a ton with the intersectionality of immigration and criminal work. And now I do a lot of mainly my focus in my legal clinic is the rights of detained adults and children. And we also do public defender advisors. We specifically work with Santa Barbara County here. And we do a lot of post-conviction relief as well. And we do also federal litigation, like a lot of habeas work for immigrants, as well as class action litigation. So that's kind of where I am now.
0: Yeah, that's a long road. (laughs) So you were at the Florence Project when you first started out. Was that your first job out of law school? My
1: very first job out of law school was at a big corporate firm because I didn't have anybody paying my law school tuition. So my goal was to pay off my tuition in a year, which I did. The funny part is I make as much now as I did my first year, 25 years ago in corporate law. And then after I did that for a year, I took a $100,000 pay cut and moved to the border where I made $19,000 a year working at the Florence Project through this Department of Justice sort of grant to provide indigent defense for immigrant children who were detained at the time by INS. And then I took this job about 15 years ago at UC Davis as the co-director of the Immigration Law Clinic because they wanted to do more civil rights, federal litigation for immigrants who were detained. I think we were one of the first, maybe at NYU with Nancy Morowitz. They also did some federal detention litigation, but it, was, it wasn't very common. Now it's just very common to have an immigration clinic as well as a federal litigation component to that clinic.
0: I don't know if I mentioned to you on social media or on some exchange we had when I saw a post you had written that said they're still working on getting counsel for kids in immigration detention. And I just was like, oh, dear God, 20 years later, we're still fighting about whether an infant, a three year old, an eight year old gets a right to an attorney in immigration proceedings. Yeah. It's crazy to me that this has not evolved in a better way. Would you say there's been any positive evolution in this regard? Yeah, so I think
1: both when we were working on the board, of Northwest Immigrant Rights Advocates tried to bring a class action litigation, sort of disassembled. I can't remember, like, why. So then the ACLU, Ahilan Arulanatha, brought a, another one trying to seek the right to appoint a counsel for immigrant children. The court kicked it out on a jurisdictional basis, saying that basically you can't sue in a class action litigation on this issue. You have to bring individual challenges. Then there was an individual challenge pending. But the really interesting part of that is that during the litigation, there was a deposition done of the head of the immigration court system saying that he believed that immigrant children as young as four could understand immigration law. So there's a real cognitive inability, I think, for the Department of Justice to really understand what it's like to defend yourself whether you're 50 years old or whether you're two years old in immigration court. And to compound that when you're detained, because you don't have the family resources, you don't have evidence at your disposal, there's no appointed counsel, but most of them are detained during this period. And I think the pro se rate for detained immigrants, including children, is somewhere around 85 to 90%, depending on the facility. And immigration law is so complex. It's not like, did you do it or not? You know, (laughs) it's sort of like the criminal justice, just to kind of bare bone it. It's really like a very really complex labyrinth of what immigration benefit you can seek, what agency you have to ask for that benefit. And to see people who are even 50 years old trying to navigate that, let alone a two-year-old, it's really mind-blowing. And part of my public defender training for Santa Barbara County, I always take them to immigration court and let them watch. And they're always blown away. And that's coming from a public defender background where it's very hard to blow away a public defender at an injustice level because, you know, y'all see it on a level that most don't. But when they just see people sitting there getting just railroaded by an immigration judge, not understanding the translation quality is poor, if at all. And people are just asking, is this a portable crime? Looking at all the different cases, looking at all the different forms of relief. And then there's the government how the lawyer there. So, it's really a good process for a public defender to understand what's at stake for their clients. And when they get out of the criminal custody, this is sort of the labyrinth they're going to have to navigate. And 85 to 90% chance they'll do it alone.
0: Yeah. No one will understand the uh, image of seeing a deportation officer walk in with an 18-month-old in his arms and say he's here representing this child. It's just (laughs) mind-blowing to see that. And then to be walking out of the detention center and you see another 8-year-old sitting in a holding cell waiting her turn for court alone. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's mind-blowing, but I'm glad that public defenders at least have, you know, I know that they're overburdened and there's still not equity there, but you try to imagine the public defender system without a lawyer on the other side of the table from the district attorney. It's just, it's, it's hmm. just not even navigable.
0: Yeah. So we are going to spend most of this podcast talking about that intersection of delinquent criminal conduct when it comes to immigration issues and consequences. But Before we go there, I can't help but at least spend a few minutes talking to you about what is going on right now on the border with kids in detention, because I feel like it's just off the media. I'm not going to associate it with Trump leaving office. I'm not exactly sure why all of a sudden we've refocused and why we're not still talking about how parents and children were never reunified. But can you just update our listeners on the status of that? You were one of the attorneys helping to monitor the Flores settlement agreement, which in basic terms was a settlement reached about the conditions of children in immigration detention. I left the
1: case about a year ago, but I was counsel on Flores for about five years.
0: Okay. I'm on
1: another class action that's intimately related to it called LucasR versus Azar. But I felt like it was just one of those. I think that I always tell people, people, a lawyer should do five years, uh, 10 years on the floor as settlement litigation because it's really intense. I was working, I think, like 60 to 70 hour work weeks all through the summer, no break. I had to step back a little bit. But yeah, I, I was on the case for maybe it was five or six years. It was very educational. I could talk a little bit about what I understand to be going on at the border with the information I have from other litigations, as well as obviously keeping tabs on my friends who still work on the Flores case. Yeah. But essentially, I think one of our cases made a big splash, which was like the kids in cages litigation, where we had gone down to the border patrol cages where they keep children. They've always kept children, at least as long as I've been a lawyer and they still do. But the conditions became even worse. I mean, you know, no no cage is ever good. There's no good conditions for a cage. They became so overcrowded with children. And the difference, I think, between like when you and I were working sort of with border issues, Chris, was that here they had separated the kids from the parents. And so the kids were essentially looking out for themselves. So you'd have like a three-year-old toddler who was just screaming and crying without consolation and um, newborn infants who were being cared for by teenage girls who were unrelated to them. So it was one of probably the most dramatic things you can imagine. Those conditions are still happening. And I think the only difference is, is what's happening is essentially Trump closed the border down under this. Title 42, which is a public safety act it allows the federal government to essentially shut down the borders during like a pandemic, at least that's their interpretation. And so we anticipated that when Biden was elected, that he would reverse this policy. And he did in part, he said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep the border closed as it pertains to adults. So if there's adults crossing the border, they're just going to be summarily expelled without the right to a hearing. However, for children, unaccompanied children will allow them to be processed in. So it doesn't take a scientist to figure out that parents are going to then put their kids to the border alone. Because the border conditions, I was just down in Tijuana two months ago, it's jaw-dropping. I mean, people are in tent camps, children are being kidnapped out by drug traffickers. While I was there, there was three teenagers who were executed. So the conditions are like on the extreme level of dangerousness. So I think parents really feel that need to protect their child. So they're sending the kids across the border alone, knowing that the Biden administration will accept kids that they're alone only. So what happens is that you have an increasing amount of children who are unaccompanied crossing the border. Whereas if we open the borders and we're processing in people in a way that was safe due to the pandemic, there's ways we can do that. And we as a country have opted out of that in knowing that the repercussion of this is going to be an increase in unaccompanied minor children. It's almost like our country sort of manufactured this crisis, and now they're holding kids in these emergency quote they call shelters, emergency detention locations. Children are all recently separated from family members. It's pretty much at really dramatic levels right now, and so the conditions are pretty, pretty bad.
0: You know, I've I've seen it. I've been there, and I'm still sitting here heartbroken as if it was yesterday. It's just mind blowing how in 2021 that anything like that would be acceptable. It just yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why
1: you've got to work on Flores for a few years and sort of jump out. Because I think everyone who does juvenile defense work, I think if it's a public defender or an immigration defender, I think that we can all recognize that the burnout rate is at least, for me at least, is at least like five times. Seeing adults in trauma is horrible, but seeing children in trauma, there's really nothing like it.
0: Yeah, I just finished my 15th year as the supervisor of our juvenile unit here in Knox County. And that must mean that something's wrong with my brain because I'm still going. Yeah. And I, I I don't think I'm burned out. It is hard to do it every day, but I do feel like that it's not the kids or their trauma particularly that burns me out. It's the system. It's watching the system treat children and families in a particular way that is hard. Now let's move on a little bit to, to me, what's really the heart of this podcast, and that is hearing from you, getting advice from you for our listeners, defenders who are representing non-citizens on their caseload. I'd like you as a professor who I know you are at UC Davis to just go back to Padilla 101 and sort of go from there talking about defenders' responsibility to their non-citizen clients, and then we'll kind of take it from there. So Padilla,
1: at least, sort of enshrined a legal principle that we have in California since the 80s, and that is that public defenders have a constitutional obligation to not only tell somebody what the immigration consequences of a plea offer will be, but also to have a duty to defend against that. At least in California, we've interpreted that as being specific advice. I think a lot of public defenders sort of took that as like, this may affect you, you know, that's that, and I've done my duty, but that's not enough. So, in the California Supreme Court, you know, we were amicus on a big case that said it's very famous because it says if a pilot says this plane may crash, you may still get on the plane. But if a pilot tells you this plane will crash, you're not getting on the plane. What they were talking about is like with Padilla, you have to really get specific advice to know, is this that it may impact me? It's just very loosey-goosey, right? Because, no, you know, of course, immigrants are going to interpret that as, well, I've been here a long time. My wife's a citizen. It's not going to really impact me. That's what an immigrant hears. But when an immigrant hears this will impact you, the government doesn't care that you have children here. The government doesn't care that you have spent like 25 years here and were all but born here. They're going to deport you if you take this plea. That resonates a lot differently with a client. I think it was really stark for me because it brought a national awareness to an issue that was always there. And I think for Chris and I, what we would see was the latter end of that. Working in immigration detention, you see an immigrant come in with like a marijuana cultivation, and that's an aggravated felony. And they're going to lose that green card of 30 years and be deported from their family for the rest of their life. Could be to Mexico. It could be to Afghanistan. It could be anywhere. And it decimates the family unit. And whereas we know is as Immigration Council, you could actually plead that up, you know, to a transportation. There's different ways you can plead these offenses. That they can actually, like the DAs are happy because they're going to get more time or potentially more time, but then the immigrant is happy because they can salvage their green card. So that's what, you know, Chris and I do is we sort of figure out that labyrinth for everybody. It's very complex. And I think that what the really stood for was just sort of this awakening from the public defender's perspective to a need that they could no longer sort of shove under the rug. What I see with public defenders most often is immigration law is so complicated that we cannot ask public defenders to navigate this alone. I do boot camps that they last uh, like a week, sometimes a week and a half, and people leave there sometimes more confused than when they got there. What it does is provide awareness of how complex this is. There's not a one-size-fits-all sort of advisal. But I think that it's good because I think public defenders are starting to wake up that this is complicated and how sort of expertise, because there's no way our defenders can take on these inordinate caseloads figure out this entirely very complex area of law and be able to give sound advisors. And I think a lot of public defenders' offices are now making it part of their institution or part of their budget to have an immigration advisor.
0: Yeah, it's not as many offices as I would hope, though, because even in Tennessee, there has been conversation about funding that for our state, and we still haven't been able to get funding. We could easily have a position or two in our state and cover the state, and we've been unwilling to fund that. We have a few large urban areas that have so myself, for example, in Knoxville. they have one in Nashville, but the rest of our state is on its own. Because most of our listeners, they will do a lot of adult work, but since we're really focusing on kids in the delinquency system, I feel like when I do trainings on this, I always use Padilla as a baseline. But if defenders are going to be truly holistic and client-centered and, as you say, really follow what Padilla is telling us to do. I always train lawyers to go way beyond just that basic concept of generalized advice in Padilla. Yeah. So when you get the question of, oh, is this delinquency adjudication going to harm my child client's immigration status? My answer is always, well, it depends. There's so much to that question, especially when it comes to delinquency adjudications versus criminal convictions. Can you just break it down for our listeners why this is not a black and white question when it comes to children in the delinquency system?
1: That's a great question. It's like you're looking at the sort of array of defenses that you need to provide holistic lawyering. One is that you're looking at whether this would make them inadmissible or deportable. The second is whether this is going to impact their eligibility for a future defense. And then the final prong is something that's very counterintuitive. How is this going to look to an adjudicator? who's giving out that benefit. In other words, you're going to look at your client like, do they deserve it looking at this delinquency? And so let's walk through those. The first is when you're looking at deportability and inadmissibility, typically, not always, you need a conviction. Some grounds of inadmissibility require just commission of an offense or even a suspicion that your client has committed an offense. Drug trafficking is sort of a famous one. If the federal government has reason to believe your client is a drug trafficker, it can impact their admissibility to the United States. Juvenile delinquency dispositions are not considered a conviction. However, if they're transferred from juvenile court into an adult court, and certain convictions can qualify for that, then that conviction, even though they are a child, will count as a conviction for immigration purposes. But then you have to look at, is there any ground of inadmissibility, deportability that doesn't require a conviction? And if so, should I be worried about that? So the first thing I always do as the criminal defenders that they're in my training is to have a checklist of all the grounds of inadmissibility and deportability that require conviction. Some require just commission. We start considering the impact of that juvenile act and whether it's going to qualify to meet that ground of inadmissibility that doesn't require conviction. The second thing is looking at the relief. Now you're looking at DACA, for example. So if you had an adult, for example, and they got a conviction for DUI, that won't make them inadmissible. It won't make them deportable, but it will bar them from renewing their DACA or having their DACA revoked. Separate and apart from grounds of inadmissibility to portability, there's the question of how is this going to impact my client's eligibility for relief? And some forms of relief, like asylum, for example, can be that you committed a crime outside of the country and it doesn't require a conviction. So I've had many children who are denied asylum that just have admitted to committing a crime, but haven't actually been convicted of that crime. So there's a whole checklist. Well, does my client's juvenile act if we admit to this? Would it bar them from any of the future benefits? And then there's just this question of discretion. For every immigration benefit, or even volunteering, the government has very broad discretion. And the central question is, does your client deserve it? They're going to look at the nature of the offense. They're going to look at the sentence that was imposed. They're going to look at your client's rehabilitation efforts. So with every kind of inquiry, we're looking at, well, how can we form a factual basis to this or form a plea that will be more palatable to a future adjudicator? Here in California, we have confidentiality provisions that protect the juvenile file from disclosure. However, USCIS or the Immigration Office will often ask for that file and ask for us to show that we've asked the court for it and been denied. But if the court grants it, then we have to disclose that juvenile adjudication. So there's different things you can do that your client is very likely if they apply for a future immigration benefit going to at least have to go through the effort of seeking that information and permission from the court to disclose it. And if they're denied, that's great. If it's accepted, then they have to disclose that. So you want to make sure that at least the facts that are in the record, you want to try to seal them or you want to try to do different things that will mitigate the future impact of your client trying to get that for purposes of seeking the immigration benefit. But also, you probably want to think about a factual basis of the plea that is going to be less harmful to your client because that very likely could end up in the Immigration file. So that's kind of the bare bones of how we look to a juvenile adjudication. And so to answer your question, yes, it can impact you. And every plea has to be very, very careful.
0: <laughs> but it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So for those defenders out in the rural areas, and, you know, we have the vast majority of our defenders in rural areas in Tennessee and in so many states. They're not sitting in an urban jurisdiction in a large office with a lot of resources and with a padilla specialist in their office. What advice would you give to those defenders who have a non-citizen? They're in a rural area. They don't know who to call. I mean, there's a couple of things you can do in our courts in
1: California. And I have to tell you, like people have this reputation of California being super liberal But California is only liberal in the very urban pockets. The rest of California is just like rural Texas out here where I live in the Central Valley. It's very conservative people. You know, there's a lot of racism even racism, obviously, in the urban sectors. But I think California traditionally is viewed as very, very liberal. But we have very, very conservative red blocks out here. In fact, if you look at the state, most of it is red, except for the big urban centers. So I'm saying this, I'm in a very rural, racist town. And I think that the one thing that some judges will do is if you apply for the court to have expert funds, Sometimes they can have an expert appointed in the case, and sometimes public defenders are successful in doing that, even with very conservative judges, saying like, I need an expert consult on this case, you have to apply for court funds, there's that avenue. The second thing is, is I think immigration lawyers, by and large, are very generous with their time. When I was young, and I didn't know what I was doing, I was always just calling people, cold calling people, asking them for help. And I think that our community, if, if maybe you even have a list of nonprofits in Tennessee, or even like nationally, like the National Immigration Project, or the National Lawyers Guild or different public defender associations. People are going to want to help you. At the end of the day, your community's health and safety is impacted by people being wrongfully deported. We had a very conservative, racist, juvenile judge out here in the city I live in, and they were very concerned about, are we just helping this person get papers, but they're undocumented? There, there should be more of a punitive Sentiment to this kid, yes, getting him deported. And when we were able to show the studies of recidivism and how it's all linked to the type of legal status you have, the educational opportunities, everything goes through the roof in terms of risk factors when somebody's undocumented. And to talk about our communities are safer when people have green cards. These foster care kids, kids in the juvenile system. So it's really about trying to educate your court about like, well, what is it is we're trying to achieve here? And if it's just punitive, that's not what the juvenile courts are supposed to be right? It takes a long time. I've been even hauled into court a number of times, people accusing me of not telling the truth about immigration benefits. And so you have to go in front of a court and really explain that this is the law, this is the pathway, and this is what it looks like. Because I think people also don't believe you. There's a lot of distrust, I think, between the courts and public defenders and district attorneys. So there's a lot of trust building that also has to happen. So there's just that. But just to let you know that there's hostility everywhere in the United States, but we have to really push And educate ourselves in order to better serve our clients because at the end of the day, if we're just getting a plea and saying, well, I don't have time for the rest, I don't care what happens to them after the plea, chances are the kids probably got like a 90% chance of recrossing the border. Now they're stuck with removal order that could lead to between a one and 20 year sentence in federal prison at some point. You know, it's really important that we address these now and do it well. Even though it's time-consuming, it's just as important as a capital murder case in some regards because many of our clients are killed in their home countries. Not in every case, but I've seen too many. You really have to start kind of making this and dedicating the time and resources to this because it is so important to people's lives.
0: Yeah. On that note of trust building, often when I'm training on this issue and I'm talking to defenders about how to approach this topic with their clients about their own immigration status, my advice is always just where were you born? Were you born in Knoxville? Hey, let's start just chatting about your childhood rather than do you have immigration status? Some like really offensive way of asking about their immigration history. Do you have any advice for defenders on how to build that rapport with their clients? Because defenders don't have a ton of time to spend on every single case. And clearly, we all want more time to spend with all of our clients. Do you have any advice for defenders on how to cut through some of that mistrust with the system and get your client to open up about maybe even their own cross-border history?
1: I mean, obviously, you want to start with, this is confidential. I'm not going to use this against you. And I'm not going to tell anybody without your permission. So I think that there's that. A big mistake I see uniformly with defenders is they're almost racially profiling amongst themselves on who they ask these questions to. I mean, just yesterday, I got one like, oh, my God, I missed two cases. And they're actually not citizens. I just missed it. I have court tomorrow on a plea at 8 a.m. I mean, that happens all the time because immigrants don't all look the same. They don't all speak the same language. Some are fluent in English. Some came here when they were six months old. Some are Black. Some are Brown. Some are Asian. The whole constellation of people can be an immigrant. It's not just undocumented folk or recent border crossers. It's also people who have green cards, who have DACA, who are going to universities, So I think making sure that you're asking this on every intake, that is the biggest advice I'd have. And then the second one is if you know, if they're not going to tell you the truth and you're trying to trust Bill, then there's nothing you can do about it. But you've documented that, that they told you that they were a citizen and that they were born here. The other thing I see, it's very complicated, but a lot of public defenders mix up the word citizenship with green card, with employment authorization, with asylum. There's so many different terms. Were you born here or where were you born? that's the cleanest way of identifying somebody. Because the minute public defenders start to try to screening for citizenship or green card, they usually end up very confused. And usually that's when the specialists will sort of take it from there. But if not, then if they weren't born here, you can just sort of ask, well, do you have any papers? Did you ever apply for papers? Do you ever get any? And just sort of suss out what type of status they have. If they have like a green card, they're not in custody. If you get asked for a copy, or a family member send you a copy of that. Sometimes even our clients themselves aren't able to self-diagnose what type of status they have. They have a work permit. We do a whole training on how to sort of identify the different types of status. And it's very helpful. But like even on work permits, there's a code on there. And if you Google the code, it'll tell you exactly what type of benefit... That person is either seeking or has obtained, and that will help the Padilla advisor with identifying the best plea for Mm -hmm. your client.
0: You mentioned earlier, I mean, we're not going to get into depth, obviously, on this podcast about all these different immigration status, green card, DACA, asylum, student visas, but in delinquency court, I do feel like that DACA comes up a lot. Can Mm -hmm. you just really briefly describe what that is? make sure our listeners understand that there are applications. Delinquency adjudication or criminal conviction isn't the language they're using when it comes to whether you can actually get DACA relief or DACA being taken away from you. If you could just describe what is DACA?
1: Yeah, DACA is just sort of like this temporary work permit that you have to renew every two to three years. And it's highly discretionary. And the bars, the criminal bars are super, super low. You can barely plead your client to anything and they will be barred for like a significant misdemeanor.
0: Who's eligible, Holly? Who's eligible for DACA? Essentially, if
1: you have to arrive in the country by a certain age, you had to live here for a certain number of years and you can't have any felony, a significant misdemeanor or three misdemeanors. And those are specifically sort of defined by Mm the policy. So there's a big FAQ section on the USCIS website. It sort of lists out what are some examples of some significant misdemeanors. So you can kind of take a look at that. to Just make sure that you're not pleading your client out to something that will bar them from future DACA.
0: Yeah. And that stands for Deferred Action for... Childhood arrivals. <laughs> yes. Childhood arrivals. There we go. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Yeah. I just didn't want us to be mentioning stuff that I feel like we should at least explain a little bit. So the other broad area I feel like of relief that youth defenders in delinquency court should understand is the intersection of this thing called special immigrant juvenile status when it comes to getting involved in the juvenile system and all of the confusion that can be surrounding that. Can you just basically discuss what that is and why defenders need to at least be aware of it for our non-citizen clients? Yeah.
1: So special immigrant juvenile visa status is one of the few types of legal status you can get with the state court's involvement. It's like a three part series to get this green card, but it's a huge opportunity for children who are in delinquency or state foster care. And sometimes we have what are called dual status kids in California, kids that are both in the sort of the foster care system and in the delinquency system. But for these kids, if you can get a state court that has jurisdiction over the child, you can get these what are called state court orders that say, whether the child has been abused, abandoned, and neglected, and you know whether or not it's in their best interest to return to their native country, they can take that state court order and they can go then apply for a special visa called a special immigrant juvenile visa status, which is S-I-J-S. Some people call it sigs Once you have that state court order, you can take that. It's kind of like a marriage, you know, when you're applying for your spouse to get their green card, Think of it as sort of the marriage. It's like you've got that first step. You've got that marriage here. You've got the state court order saying this kid was abused, abandoned, and neglected. There's other sort of requisites you have to have on an order. There's tons of examples online that you can go make sure you do it right. And then they can take that and apply for their visa. And once they have that visa approval, they have to kind of look and see whether there's a wait list for their country or not. Sometimes it can be 18 months wait. Sometimes it's immediate. And they can take that in and cash it in and apply for a green card. Once they start applying for the green card, that's when your client will be fingerprinted. That's when they're going to start seeing maybe there's an arrest, maybe there's a juvenile disposition. Sometimes we do see those on rap sheets. And that's when they're going to start asking for those juvenile court records. So I always let people know, just applying for the visa, that second phase, you're not going to be fingerprinted. So you may as well just apply for that and have that in your back pocket. And then they have that approved visa, they can then, during that third step, consult with you because maybe in that 18 months, they've gotten more adjudication. Maybe they're now an adult and they have adult conviction. They need to pause before they do that third step and check in with you or an immigration expert and see should they fulfill that now because now they're going to put themselves at the attention of the government. But there's no harm in doing step one and step two in my mind if you can get those so they have that approved visa that they can sort of cash in if they need it because sometimes they're taken into custody. Now they have that approved visa and they can apply defensively. But it's a huge opportunity for kids because it allows them to get one step closer to becoming a citizen. Once they've got that green card, then after five years, they can become a citizen. One caution would be that they can never apply. If they do get that green card, they can never apply for their family members in the future. It sort of bars you from applying for your mom or dad for any benefit. It can be a consideration for kids. So that's when you start looking at maybe other avenues for your clients.
0: Are there any other applications for relief that you think specifically should be on the radar of youth defenders? The easiest one to get is the T visa.
1: It's overlooked a lot. There's all sorts of manuals on it. In its essence, it's a visa for victims of trafficking. It's called a T visa. It has a pretty low threshold for what qualifies as trafficking for children. We've even had kids qualify who were forced to care for their uncle's children without pay. They were sort of brought here for that purpose. So trafficking can be labor trafficking. I think a lot of times we think of it as like drug trafficking, sex trafficking, using kids as mules. It is all of those things, but it's much more. The TV set usually doesn't have a wait list. It's the lower threshold. Sometimes it will be screening the kids, why they came here, who brought them here, have they ever done unpaid labor, have they ever you know, been forced into prostitution. It's a shocking number of immigrant kids that are all of those things sometimes. The other type of visa that's very common for kids is the U visa, which is a visa where you're the victim of a crime. There's a list of crimes, what are called qualifying crimes, that you're the victim of. And if you're sort of cooperative with the investigation, whether it's with the DA, the judge, the CPS, the police department, the county sheriff, then you can qualify for this. It doesn't have to result in a successful prosecution, which some people get confused about. But if your client has ever been the victim of a crime, in most communities of color, it's almost like 90% of my clients I screen have been the victims of a crime. But then you have to check and make sure it's a qualifying crime. Then you have to see if they didn't cooperate, they can still cooperate today in the investigation. I meet some kids that were raped by their father. They never told anyone and they're telling me for the first time they may not want to come forward. That's their decision. But they may want to come forward if they know it's an immigration benefit. The weird part of this can be that they may start creating a conflict with your office. So you have to kind of check in with that and maybe hire somebody externally because if you're going to aid and your client wanting to sort of seek charges against somebody, then your office then may have a conflict of interest with that father when and if he's charged, if he's in your jurisdiction.
0: So we're wrapping up our interview, and I've taken a lot of your time. It's a complex topic, and it's hard to talk about it in 50 minutes and break it down. I do appreciate you're doing that for us. So if you just had one message just to end our podcast, either on a positive note or one message you'd like to get to Defenders, what would that message be from Professor Holly Cooper of UC Davis?
1: I would say this, and I tell the story to my students, is that when I first started doing immigration law, I saw so many people in immigration custody that didn't need to be there. And it was because they had obtained a plea where I know they could have either pled up or pled just with a different word in the factual basis, and they wouldn't be there. Now, because we have such a strong PADIA program in California, when I go into the immigration detention facilities, I can honestly look at a plea agreement and tell whether or not someone's had a pdia or not. Now we almost never see green card holders in there because people are able to obtain good pleas for them. So the demographic of detention has changed entirely in the state of California. And I would say that your five minute of research into this can change somebody's life entirely. Side of the detention center, I can tell which counties don't have PD advisors. Because I'm like, oh, I know San Francisco's got that. There's no way they would have done that. And then you look and it's like, oh, it's Sutter County. They don't have a PD advisor. I can tell just by looking at the factual basis of the plea. We've seen such a dramatic shift in California that there's no longer green card holders essentially in detention. Mm-hmm. What you guys are doing has the biggest impact on immigration detention than anything else in this country. Maybe Congress can change the laws, but until then, public defenders are the first line of defense against immigration detention and deportation. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Your even five minutes of mm-hmm. investigation can totally change the dynamic in in detention
0: yeah absolutely i couldn't agree with you more thank you so much holly cooper i really really love seeing you i love talking to you i'm so glad that i've had the opportunity with this silly (laughs) podcast to reconnect with you yeah it's good to see you please take care of yourself it sounds like you are doing lots of self-care and i'm happy to hear that thanks chris have a good day bye all right bye-bye Defenders, thanks for joining us. We hope this podcast was as inspiring to you as it was for us. In Defense of Children podcast aims to bring these informative conversations with top thought leaders and experts in our field so defenders can listen whenever and wherever they are. We hope to build a community and become the best lawyers we can be for these kids. If you have ideas for episodes you want to listen to, drop us an email at info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org. That's info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org, just like it's spelled, and we will do our best to set it up.